Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I love that song. It's a song that doesn't make me feel old-fashioned. It's a song that, in a manner of speaking, makes me feel timeless. See, that song, just for a little bit of perspective, was written in 1914. In 1914, 99 years ago, the song, the hymn writer felt old-fashioned because the hymn writer said God's way is the only way. Because the hymn writer said the Bible is true and the only word of God. And people in 1914 said you are old-fashioned because you believe the Bible is true, the word of God. You are old-fashioned because you are looking for the heavenly kingdom to come. You are old-fashioned because you're doing what's right according to the word of God. Can you believe it? You're actually following the precepts in this book? What a legalist. You're old-fashioned. 1914. 1914. And here we are, 99 years later, singing about how we're following the old-fashioned way. And that's not... Because we're old-fashioned, it's because the Word of God is timeless. Because God's Word is true. Because truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I love that song. Because it reminds me that apostasy, falling away, wickedness, is not an exclusivity of our generation at all. And by our generation, there's many generations in this room, aren't there? Of my generation, of your generation, of your generation, of your generation. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The hymn writer said, my sin was old-fashioned. We're doing the same things today that Adam and Eve did in the garden. We are committing the same sins today that Cain and Abel and Seth and all of those patriarchs, fathers of the faith, did. And we're responding to God in the same way that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob responded to God, which is by grace, through faith, and the revealed promises of God's Word. And we are looking for the same thing they are looking for, according to Hebrews chapter 11, which is a heavenly home. So don't let anybody tell you that you're old-fashioned. When they say that, just, just translate timeless in there and to be encouraged because you know what? God's Word hasn't changed. And if things are changing, it's not God that's doing the changing. It's us that's doing the changing. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 4. We've spent the past two weeks focusing upon elements of ministry. Two weeks ago, we observed warnings to ministers. Oh, by the way, as we're getting started, I should have done this already. Evan has outlines if you'd like an outline. Tell you what, Evan, from now on, just stand up and wave them in the air while I'm talking and people can, people can figure it out. And if I see you, then I'll, uh, then I'll make a note of it or something like that. Two weeks ago, we observed warnings to ministers. Last week, we considered three important lessons concerning the ministry. And when I say important, I really mean it. 
Perhaps you've listened to these messages and you've thought in your mind, I haven't heard anyone say it to me at least, maybe you've said it to one another, that these messages aren't really relevant to you. After all, you're not full-time ministers, you're not called to the ministry. So, Pastor, what are you doing getting behind your pulpit and preaching to a bunch of lay people about the ministry? But really, that's not the case at all. Number one, you recall, I've been applying it to you. I've been applying it to fathers. I've been applying it to mothers. I've sought to apply it to lay leaders. We're going to be getting some deacons soon. Certainly that would apply. Our church officers, those of you in the church who who maybe don't have official leadership positions, but you have taken it upon yourself to mentor some of these young people, to, to be a leader to some of these young people in some way, shape, or form. And so... We can all benefit from lessons in regard to warnings, in regard to instructions concerning the ministry. Certainly we can all benefit from the lessons in regard to the church because we're all a part of the church and we need to discern the church. But even more than that, these past weeks, as it were, including today, because we're going to continue speaking of the ministry, are perhaps we might call it a crash course in discernment. You know, there are plenty of men and women around this country who have assumed that title, assumed the mantle of teacher, of pastor, of rabbi, of priest, of whatever they want to call themselves. They lead churches and worship, they preach messages, and by doing so, they claim the privileges and the responsibilities of a minister of God to God's people. But many of them don't represent God. Some of them do indeed represent God, but they don't represent Him well. Some of them represent no one other than themselves. And the only way you can know who is representing God, how they're representing God, or if they're not representing God at all, is by exercising proper discernment found through spiritual maturity. In fact, this was a part of the problem for the believers in Corinth, wasn't it? Their ministers were not leading them in the right direction. Their ministers were encouraging them to divide. And the church couldn't see it because they were carnal. Consider with me Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here is the writer of Hebrews contrasting those who are babes in Christ with those who are mature in Christ. We see a very similar contrast. We saw a very similar contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul even used the same analogy of having to feed the carnal believers of Corinth with milk instead of with meat because they were still babies, because they were still children in Christ. They couldn't bear the meat of the Word of God, the heaviness of the Word of God. They were stuck on the milk, the basics of the Word of God. And as he says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, the meat of the Word of God, the deeper doctrinal truths of the Word of God, belong only to those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised both to discern good and evil. That we have our senses, our ability to discern exercised 
as we use that ability, as we, when we hear the name of a speaker, there's a conference, or you get a DVD, and there's the name of someone on it, and you look at that name, and that person is about to instruct you in the ways of God's Word. When you use your discernment, when you do a little research, when you find out who this person is, who they affiliate with, what do they teach, should I be placing myself under their authority? Should I really be willing to listen to what that guy has to say or what that woman has to say? And then as you do listen to them, if you do listen to them, you are using your discernment to discern what he's saying, why he might be saying it, where is that found in the Word of God, is that found in the Word of God, is this appropriate for the setting in which it... All of these things. We use our discernment. And we become more and more capable of discerning, of distinguishing between that which is indeed good and that which is evil because we become more mature in the faith. Maturity comes through teaching and exercise. These Corinthian believers lack discernment. They lack both the teaching and the exercise needed to discern good and evil. It's not because they had not ever been taught it, for Paul had taught it to them, but they had forsaken it, forgotten it, had not exercised it, and had lost it. And as we walk through these messages concerning ministers, last two weeks, as well as our message this morning, you have the privilege of learning through the Corinthian church how to discern whether or not the men that you have placed yourself under are proper ministers of the Word of God according to the teachings found in the Word of God, that timeless book, that old-fashioned book that we study. And I'd like to caution you this morning for a very particular reason. Of any of the messages we've spoken of in regard to ministry and ministers thus far, I believe this one perhaps is the most important, though ranking Scripture might be foolish. And I do so, I say that because we live in a very unique time. Your pastor lives in a very unique time to be a pastor. See, in the last 20 years, something has happened that has revolutionized the world. That's called the Internet. It's really been about 25, 30 years now, but mainstream, 20, 15 to 20 years. Say, mainstream, pastor, I don't have Internet. Well, you're behind the times. Most people have Internet. But we also have things like television and radio that have been along for quite a while now. And the fact of the matter is this. At your fingertips, at any given moment, of any given day, you can take advantage of thousands upon thousands of hours of study and preaching. You can go to websites that have thousands of hours of teaching and preaching. You can do free Bible Institute classes online. You can listen to the most renowned teachers of the day from thousands of miles away. You can even listen to men that preached 50, 60, 70 years ago in archives, audio archives. You can watch videos. You can see them preach, not just hear them preach. You can see them live. And so your pastor stands behind this pulpit every week knowing that I'm not the only one you're listening to. 
Your pastor stands behind the pulpit every week not knowing who else is feeding you and not knowing what they're feeding you. And so I need to teach you how to discern. And you need to learn how to discern because a hundred years ago, back when the old-fashioned way was written, a pastor could stand up, he'd know everyone in his congregation, and if Joe Smith the evangelist came to town, a pastor would find out about Joe Smith and would tell everyone in his congregation whether or not to listen to Joe Smith. And a pastor would go listen to Joe Smith himself and warn the people about what Joe Smith said that may not have been right. But today, you might have listened to 15, 16, 17 different teachers this week, for all I know. And I don't know what they taught you. And so this message and these messages on discernment in ministry are very near and dear to my heart because I can't protect you the way I want to. I can't guide you as well as I might want to because I don't have access to everything you have access to. I don't know what you're being fed. But I will tell you that I am concerned every day about what you're being fed and who's feeding you. Because I only get you for an hour, two hours, three hours a week. You can listen to a great deal online, over the radio, television, on any given week. So that is why we live in such a unique time for the church. You need to know how to exercise discernment so that you can guard yourself when I cannot help you and guide you and shepherd you shepherd you as the pastor that God has called me to be. So today I'd like to give you two very basic principles that can help you discern the character of ministers. This is not going to be comprehensive. It's going to be what we see reflected in the Word of God as exampled by Paul and Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Two elements of what a minister needs to be that, hey, if one of these is off track, then there should at least be a red flag that pops up so that you can know to look a little bit deeper. And the first very basic principle that we'll look at is found in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 4. Ministers should be a biblical example. Ministers should be a biblical example. You recall where we finished last time. In verse 7, Paul asked the question, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And why? what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, why do you think that you're something special because of the gifts God has given you, and that person is not special because of the gifts God has given him? God's given everyone the gifts. He continues in verse 8. Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God that ye did reign. That we also might reign with you. Paul intends the readers to read this with a very high level of sarcasm. Don't think that he's actually telling them that they're ruling and reigning. In a manner of speaking, they are because they think they are, but they're not. 
Paul says, you are full, you are rich, you reign as kings. Well, he says, I would to God you did reign as kings, so that we could reign with you, but you don't. He had asked them in the previous verses how they differed one from another. Whereas the church should have seen themselves as careful and humble co-laborers for Christ, instead, they saw themselves as the very outworking of the kingdom of God on this earth. They had everything figured out. They are full. They are rich. They are reigning as kings. But really, they didn't. Paul says, he wishes that they did truly reign. That they did truly have everything figured out. That they could all reign together as the kingdom will one day promise. Unfortunately, the very fruit of their lives revealed quite the opposite. They're carnal. They're spiritually immature. The temptation to reign as kings upon this earth is always present in the lives of believers. We think we have arrived. We think we've figured everything out. In the case of the Corinthians, they allowed their understanding, as it were, of grace to compel them to live wicked and sinful lives while excusing it because of the liberty that they have in Christ, what we call today as free grace. This was what Paul sarcastically meant when he said that they were reigning as kings. Christians, however, are strangers and pilgrims upon this earth. This is not our time to claim dominance. This is our time to humbly serve. This is not our time to enjoy the pleasures of flesh for a season or to carnally divide ourselves into false factions of spiritual superiority. This is our time to, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9.27, to keep under our bodies and to bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul did not come into any spiritual conversation thinking that he was something very special. He called himself the chief of sinners. He wondered at times why the grace of God would even be so good as to have allowed him into the family of God. He says, I killed God's people. I persecuted the church of God. He says, however, I found mercy because I did it in ignorance. These believers in Corinth thought they had arrived, but in fact they were carnal. They epitomized the warning given to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Let me read that warning for you. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth because this is, get this because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked here was a church in Laodicea at the same time that the church in Corinth was doing their thing this was a church in Asia and they thought that they had everything under control. They were reigning as kings. They said, we're rich. We have need of nothing. We are increased with goods. We're in a great place. Look at how the Lord has blessed us. And the Amen says, you don't understand that you're poor, that you are wretched, 
that you are naked, that you're blind. You don't get it. See, you have taken all the things of this earth and you have epitomized the things of this earth as the greatest that God has for you and God has something better. But it's going to take you being a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth. We'll understand this more as the Scriptures flesh out. God's advice to the church in Revelation of Laodicea was found in verses 18 and 19. Let me read those to you. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that thy sh the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. God said, you think you're rich. You think you're happy. You are increased with goods and you don't understand how poor, spiritually poor, how spiritually wretched, how spiritually blind, how spiritually naked you are. But I have the solution. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. The fires of tribulation. The fires of temptation. Buy of me that which comes from Suffering from loss, from yieldedness, from submission. And clothe yourself in white raiment. The raiment of the righteousness of God. Such is the same advice that Paul is giving here in 1 Corinthians 4 to the church. Look at verses 9 and 10. For I think that God hath set forth the apostles last as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Paul says that God has placed the apostles in these last days to be an open declaration of what a believer should expect in these last days of ministry to God. Verse 9, Paul says, we are made a spectacle. The word spectacle is used only two other times in the entire Bible, both found in Acts 19, a word to describe a theater setting. Paul is literally saying here, we are put on the stage of the world, as if the entire world is looking at us, and we're put on the stage. We are made a spectacle to the world of what it means to be a servant of Christ. In verse 10 he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Paul says that the world looks at the apostle and they think that he's crazy. They mock him. They scorn him. They despise him. Look at all the things you're giving up in this life, Paul. Look, you had everything. You were a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. You had wealth. You had power. You had prestige. You had everything going for you and you gave it all up for what? To be stoned? For this message? You gave up all that you had for what? To make tents? To eke out a living? While you're thrown out of synagogue and synagogue and synagogue? While people despise you and scorn you? You're crazy. He says we're made fools for Christ's sake. But on the contrary, notice how Paul states, notice the contrast he gives between the apostles and the, the church at Corinth. Paul says to the church at Corinth that they're wise in Christ. 
He says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're honorable. Do you see something wrong with that picture? Why would it be that Paul would go into a city like Corinth and he would be brought before the law seeking to charge him with treason? He would suffer hunger and thirst and lack material comforts. And yet the believers in Corinth are seen as wise in Christ. They're still honorable. They retain their reputation. They retain their honor. They retain their riches. Something is wrong with the church at Corinth. Paul then continues to describe their example. Look at verses 11 through 13. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands being reviled we bless being persecuted we suffer it being defamed we entreat we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day they suffer they bless those that revile them they bear the persecutions of the cross of Jesus Christ they entreat God for those that defame them someone defames them they ask God to forgive them Someone smacks them, they bless back. Paul says they're made the filth, the refuse, the garbage, the trash of the world. All men see them basically as the scum of the earth. A vivid description of the life and efforts of the apostles in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not pretty doesn't give you happy thoughts. It doesn't ring with the sound of joy and happiness of the Lord, does it? Why is Paul saying these things? Why would Paul remind them of what the apostles... And notice it's not just Paul that's going through this. All of the apostles went through this. Peter wasn't exempt. Nathaniel wasn't exempt. James and John weren't exempt. The apostles went through this. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Paul says he isn't writing to cause them to be ashamed at their comfort. And I'm not standing behind this pulpit today, or not behind this pulpit today as it were, trying to shame you if you are comfortable at home. I'm not trying to shame you if you drive a John Deere tractor to mow your lawn, even though it's 15 square feet long, you know, wide. I'm not trying to shame you over these things. Paul isn't trying to shame them for having material goods, but he's warning them. That would literally mean to caution them or to admonish them. This is a warning that has a little bit of a rebuking shade to it. Look at verses 15 and 16. What's the warning? He says, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. In other words, I'm the one that led you to Christ. You may have 10,000 people that are teaching you, but I'm the one that led you to Christ. So he's appealing to that to get them to listen to him a little bit here. Verse 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. The question, 
how is it that the apostle could be spreading the gospel and the doctrine of Jesus Christ and in every, excuse me, every place he went, without fail, he would meet resistance, he would meet persecution, to some, to some higher degrees, some lower degrees, some places he was thrown out of the city, some places he was stoned and left for dead, some places he was run out of the city, some places didn't run him out, but ignored him, like Athens. How is it that he could be met with scorn and mockery and persecution and yet the church of Corinth thinks they're doing things okay and they're in a place of comfort and peace? How is it that they don't have any detractors? How is it that they reign as kings and are full and are rich? See, something is amiss here. Either the apostles are doing something wrong or the church of Corinth is doing something wrong. They are both ministering the same gospel, the same scriptures, the same cities, and finding entirely different results, responses, excuse me, it's the word I want. Paul was nearly beaten in Corinth. How is it that the Christians in Corinth are seen as honorable and reign as kings? So Paul admonishes them here as one who had laid the foundation of the gospel upon which they rest be ye followers of me. What was Paul telling them to do? He says, be like I am. Go in the direction I am going. Preach the gospel to all men even though it will mean some scorn. Even though it will mean some ridicule. Be willing to suffer for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we recall from our John series, which we finished just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, called the disciples to follow him. Where did Jesus go? Jesus and Peter are walking in Galilee. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, when you were young, you girt yourself and went whithersoever you would. Peter, when you were young, you put on your clothes, whatever clothes you decided to put on that day, and you went wherever you wanted to go. But Peter, he says, when thou art old, another will gird you and they will take you places you don't want to go. Peter, as you fulfill your ministry, you are going to be put on a cross. They're going to place you on that cross, and you are going to be killed for my name. He told Peter that at the beginning of Peter's ministry. And then the next words out of Peter's, uh, Jesus' mouth to Peter, Peter says, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Jesus says, don't worry about John. And then he says, follow me. You know the consequences of following me, Peter. Follow me anyway. Jesus told the disciples, follow me. The disciples followed him. Paul followed Christ and was accompanied with the scorn, the same scorn that Christ received. And now Paul is calling the church of Corinth to follow him into the exact same scorn that accompanies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now a little clarification here before we move on. We as believers do not go out into the world with the intent of making people angry. There's a church in the Midwest called Westboro Baptist Church. They, number one, do not have proper doctrine 
They do not even believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not believe in salvation by grace through faith. They believe in salvation by works. It's very clearly evidenced in all of their doctrinal statements. So they are not the church of God. They are not believers in Jesus Christ. However, they call themselves believers. And they believe that the suffering that they incur for their hatred is a validation that they're doing what God wants them to do. The suffering that we receive is not a validation of truth. Truth will be validated through a response. We are not meant to be angry, hateful people. Nor does the fact that people are angry at us immediately infer that we're doing what's right. We don't go looking for scorn. We don't go looking for ridicule. We don't go looking for persecution. When we're reviled, we do not revile back. When we are scorned, we do not scorn back. We bless them that curse us. We pray for them that despitefully use us. We ask, we entreat God the Father to forgive those that harm us. By the way, if you look at the fruit of Westboro Baptist Church, they are very angry, hateful people. They do not bless those that curse them. They do not pray for those that despitefully use them. The fruit of their actions is not righteousness anyway. We do not put ourselves in the path of unnecessary evils, but we must recognize that if we are doing that which is right, we will face scorn, ridicule, some persecution, and defamation. If we are doing things right, the lost world will not be able to passively sit by without forming some opinion concerning our message. And this is one of the reasons why ministers exist. We exist to be your example. To serve as the example to the flock of the proper ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be the tip of the spear, as it were, to lead the people into ministry. To be the kind of men that can say, as Paul would tell the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So by extension, when you see a minister who is not following Christ, you likewise see a minister who is not being the proper example. When you see a minister who will not tell others of the gospel, when you see a minister who seeks friendship with the world system, when you see a minister who is not being a proper example, he's not being a proper minister. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 through four, puts the charge to ministers this way. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being end samples or examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Ministers should be a biblical example. Second and final lesson in regard to ministers this morning, ministers should reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Ministers should reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is found in verses 18 through 21. 
Let's pick up in verse 17. Notice what Paul says. He says, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, I haven't changed my teaching any, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my faithful disciple, one who has been faithful to me, a man who is indeed a pastor, shepherd, elder, bishop himself, Timotheus. I'm going to send him to you and he's going to remind you what I expect. He's going to take a look at the fruit of your lives and he is going to remind you how you ought to be living this life for Christ. He's warning them that they would take heed to him. Apparently, the division in the church went as deep as to argue, argue even about Paul's intentions toward the church itself. But even Paul's words here were not without controversy and division. Look at verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. There were those that said in pride that Paul was not going to come to them. Paul states in contradiction, verses 19 and 20, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Paul not only states that he is coming, but he challenges the arrogant boasting of those dissenters. He will tell them to put their actions where their mouth is and prove that they are better, greater, more authoritative representatives of the Lord Jesus than his own chosen apostles. See, these men said, the reason why Paul's writing to you, this is what Paul anticipated, they'll say, well, the reason Paul's writing unto you instead of coming himself is because he's not going to come. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about the church. Paul says, some of you are arrogantly saying that I won't come that I have refused to come because I don't want to have to face these people in the church. These people are saying, see, Paul doesn't want to have to face me because he'll know I'm right. Paul's afraid. Paul says, that's not it. Notice what he says in verse 21. What will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Paul is writing because he knows it is his responsibility as a minister of the gospel to rebuke their wrongs. And he would much rather be able to join them in joy than in rebuke. He would much rather come to them bearing the joy of knowing that they are right with God than have to come to them bearing a rod of correction. It is never fun for a minister to have to rebuke his church or those in his church. It is not something any minister looks forward to. There is not one day where I sit in my desk or one evening where I'm lying in bed giddy with excitement when I have to come to one of the people in my congregation and tell them that they're doing wrong. It does not please me. I don't enjoy it. No minister does. But I would be remiss in my duties as a shepherd if I didn't. So he implores them to correct themselves, to get things right so that when he comes, he may do so in meekness and love, not in righteous indignation and correction, just 
as the minister is called by God to set an example of the word of God to the flock, they are also charged to call upon their people to follow the word of God. I am a minister, an example whereby I tell you, follow me as I follow Christ. But it is also my duty to stand behind this pulpit and as need be to speak with you and tell you where you need to be in Christ. The shepherd of the word of God is charged to call upon his people to obey. Reproof is a part of the necessity of ministry. A minister who does not reprove wrong, whether generally or specifically, is a minister who has abdicated his responsibility before God. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 23 says this, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Proverbs will tell us that if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you that he will become wiser still. Proverbs also say, don't even bother rebuking a fool. He'll just hate you for it. As Paul called upon Timothy to be a faithful minister of the gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he used these words. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. A minister who refuses to reprove, rebuke, and exhort is a minister who is not performing the call of God upon his life. We live in a very unique time. I've mentioned this. Unlike any other time in history, every person under the sound of my voice has the ability to benefit from the teaching of people all around the world. 24 hours a day if you'd like. You could literally be listening to preaching 24 hours a day. But with such a privilege ladies and gentlemen, comes a great responsibility. It is your responsibility to exercise discernment regarding who you sit under and who you learn from. Not all who take the name minister are true ministers of the Word of God. Not all who call themselves pastor are shepherding their flock, are following in God's footsteps, are leading those under them to do the same. Not all who take that position of shepherd protect the flock. Some of them fleece the flock. And Corinth was a church that had, due to lack of discernment caused by their own carnality, failed to follow the example of the true ministers of Jesus Christ that they had had. Men like Paul. Men like Apollos. And possibly Cephas. They followed the example of the men Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 3, to build the church properly lest they suffer destruction as destroyers of the temple of God. So too, it is my warning to you today, I implore you, use biblical discernment as you choose who to listen to. Ensure that their example is one of biblical truth. It's not very hard nowadays to learn what a person believes. It's not very hard. You don't even have to do all the research yourself. There are ministries out there that are consistently researching the lives, the fruit, the example, and the books of these men so that you won't have to do all of the tedious work. Now, you need to vet those who are vetting others as well. But may I encourage you that a part of being a receptor 
to the Word of God is knowing who is teaching you, knowing their example, and knowing that they are properly fulfilling the call upon God for their lives of reproving, rebuking, exhorting the the believers. It's my greatest desire that you would see in me as your minister the very basic marks of a proper minister of Jesus Christ. I desire to be a good example. I desire that I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. I desire that you would hear from this pulpit the word of God, whether it be encouragement and joy, or whether it be reproof and rebuke. But it is also my great prayer that you place yourself under the counsel of other men that call themselves pastors who are actually doing the work if you're going to place yourself under the teaching of other men. That you would use biblical discernment. That you would carefully look into those marks of a biblical minister. And that you would recognize only those men who, by biblical example and through biblical teaching, have validated themselves as true ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the attention of God's people as it has been preached. Lord, I ask that every man and woman and child in this room, as they take upon themselves the opportunity and the responsibility of ministering, of listening to ministers, of of discerning the word of God, I pray that you would help them to be properly discerning, that they would look at the biblical example, the lifestyle of the ministers as they live, and that they would look at the biblical teaching of the ministers as they speak and as they write, and that they would not place themselves under ministers who have shown themselves to be improper examples or improper teachers of the Word of God. Father, I pray for myself that you would help me. The calling of a minister is so high. There's no way I can accomplish it. Save through you. Father, please accomplish in me as a minister what I cannot do myself. Please help us all to exercise the proper biblical discernment to live our lives in such a unique time in church history. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a seal opportunity for you to reflect upon the word of God that's been given. Please allow the word of God to speak to your hearts through the Holy Spirit in order that you might understand perhaps a decision needs to be made. Perhaps there are certain ministers that you need to not place yourself under. Perhaps um, this is an opportunity for you to determine to be more discerning. To take a look at some of those people you're listening to in order that you, you might be fed properly. And certainly, may I just say this before we go to our sila. Feel free at any time to ask your pastor what he thinks of someone. And if I don't know the name, I'll find out for you. I'll do the work for you to ensure that the people you are placing yourselves under are men that exhibit the proper fruit of the Word of God as you seek to learn that discernment and to know who it is you should be placing yourself under.